Well, this morning at about 4.45, I believe it was, my 17-year-old teenage daughter, she needed to be at the Kroger parking lot to catch a bus for Young Life Camp. And last night around the dinner table, I declared to her and to the whole family, hey, I'll get up in the morning and take you. And this morning about 4.30 when an alarm sounded in our bed, Susan, a few minutes later, said, oh, forget it, I'll do it. And I said, yeah, babe, you take her, I'll preach the sermon. So I can't, even, I can't even look at her right now, honestly. I just want to say, men, keep your promises, okay? It's really important to keep those promises. Hey, this morning represents a standalone message. I would much rather preach a sermon in a series. It's just easier to kind of find the direction, the continuity of it all. But today's a standalone message. As you know, most of our sermons are a part of a series. Last week, young Daniel preached such a great sermon as he finished out fear. I've been joking with him for some time now that I told him, Daniel, you know, uh, you're not old enough to rent a car, but you're old enough to preach at Fondren Church. And just uh, with a recent birthday and after being our student pastor for three years now, he is now old enough to rent a car. So I have to put that jab, that joke uh, to bed. Okay, yeah. So Daniel can rent a car, a van, minivan, anything he wants to. One day he'll probably need a minivan. So is that scary all over here? Uh, look, hey, this morning as we... Uh, enter into this uh, standalone sermon. I want to ask you if you like to have an open Bible in front of you. Some of you do. I admire you for that. Turn to John chapter 3. We're going to get there in uh, just a moment. We know that you know the God so of the world part, but we're going to end up sort of toward the end of this passage in a little bit. In fact, a little different today, we're going to end up there. So we're going to create some, some ideas. We're going to trace something through Scripture, and then we're going to get there and read the passage, and I'm going to just throw three points on you because that's what preachers do. They throw three points on people. And I just, I think it's really good stuff. And so I hope today that you'll be ready on Memorial Day weekend to receive this today. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I'm going to put the, my cards on the table right up front. I'm going to ask you today to kill it. I want you to leave here this morning with the resolution of, man, I want to kill it. Now, what could the preacher, what could he be talking about today? I want to talk to you about something that's deep inside of you. Something that's way down deep, that writer C.S. Lewis, he, he refers to a lot of vices, a lot of sins. He mentions anger and drunkenness and immorality. And he says that those things are merely flea bites compared to this. And so this is something inside of you. I'm going to drop some clues and I want you to guess uh, what it could be, okay? I drop the clues and you guess in a moment. This that I'm asking you to kill is something inside of you and that it keeps you from... And it causes you to. Okay, it keeps you from and it causes you to. It does. It keeps you from being honest with yourself and being honest with others. It keeps you from learning new things because you already know everything. It keeps you from admitting weakness, from asking for help, for initiating an apology when you know you're wrong, for initiating an apology when you know you're only 5% wrong and they're 95% wrong. It keeps you from, and it causes you to. It causes you to feel good when others fail, to refuse to celebrate the successes of other people. It causes you to need the final word. It causes you, some of you can relate to this, it causes you to keep making your point even though midway through the argument you realize you don't even have a good point. It causes you to lie about your past, to boast about your future, to buy things, to impress people. It causes you to crowd out other people in your life. 
All right, church. Yes. We're talking about we're talking about pride. Psalms chapter 10:4 says this, and I think we can get a 10:4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. You see, not only does pride in your heart, deep inside you, that thing you want to kill, not only does it crowd others out, it crowds God out. So this morning, I want us to look at this, and I'm going to look at this, um, a a man, a story of a man in John chapter 3. Again, we're going to save it to the end, but someone who killed it. Someone who killed that something deep inside of him, and I think we can learn a few ways that, that we can do that that you and I can do that this morning. So, I want to ask you, how does pride manifest itself in you? Pride is one of those things, you know this, do you? It's easy to see in others, but it's almost impossible to make out in the mirror. We see it in other people, just not in ourselves. How does pride manifest itself in you, and how does pride masquerade as something else inside of you oh it's not arrogance it's confidence it's not workaholism it's a drive to excellence and to succeed that's what it is pride manifests itself in us and pride can masquerade as something else inside of us and what I want to do to you today is draw a contrast between a driven proud person and a person that rests that's relaxed, that feels called. A person that has a sense of calling. That's what we're going to see at the end of the message today in John chapter 3 is someone who killed it. He killed that something of pride inside of him, and he was a called person. Now, let me ask you, how many of you feel called? You probably shouldn't raise your hand. There could be embarrassment around the room. But how many of you feel like you could say in your life that God has called you to fill in the blank? Like You know that you're called to something. Now, there are myths about calling. I was thinking about it this week. It's sort of a spooky thing. There's four myths. I want to present them to you today. The first myth is that it's reserved for special people, people like Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, and Robert Greene. It's easy for us to think that it's for really spiritual giants uh, in the Christian life. That is a myth. We're calling it out as a lie. The second myth is that it's kind of a mystical, dramatic event. Hear me now. It can be. It really can be. I don't talk about it much, but I feel like that I've had at least three dramatic, uh, mystical events in my own life where God truly showed up, and there's just no other explanation for it. I I believe in this, but hear me when I clarify. The myth is that it has to be some kind of mythical, dramatic event. A calling, hear this if you're a note taker and you really want to process this today, a calling is this. It's what you discover about yourself. It's discovering how God made you, and then it's having other people affirm that uniqueness of who you are. And it really is a process. It can be an event, but more times than not, it's a process of discovering. You do the discovering of how God made you, and then other people around you affirm that uniqueness in you. That's not to say be a people pleaser. It's not to say lick your index finger and hold it up to the crowd and and look for everybody's opinion and validation and affirmation. Not at all. But if you have a calling and you're moving toward that calling, you've discovered 
that God's given that to you and other people are affirming that in you. Guys, we need to live in community. You need to live in community. I know it's true in me. The third myth of a calling is that it's just a job we choose or stuff we do. This reduces the first two kind of make it something out of reach and these last two, three, and four sort of reduce what a calling is. It's not just, now it can be, probably ought to be, but it's not just a job we choose or stuff we do. And then fourthly, we can fake our calling. There's a, there's a common myth, we can fake our calling. Some people, they see a need in the world and they just run after it. No thought, no planning, no prayer, no really listening to God's voice. There's just a need, and can I say this, not my words originally, but every need does not necessitate a call. What has God called you to? Listen, you can't fake your calling. And I know that some do. They're pastors in particular, church staff, volunteers who miss the calling of God and they fake who God has made them out to be. And what happens? I'll tell you, burnout. Each and every time, burnout. I read these words years ago. It means a lot. Burnout is when external busyness dries up the internal goodness you once possessed. That's good, isn't it? It's when external busyness dries up the internal goodness that you once possessed. In all likelihood, you've been faking a calling. You've just gone toward a need and thrown yourself out it, at it, but it's not who God has made you. Others haven't affirmed that. And over time, you know, you signed up. You're like, hey, God, I'm going to serve the boss. The benefits are out of this world. The coworkers are all so nice and friendly. And you were excited at first, but because you faked this calling, you just got busy in the doing. It became a job. It became stuff that you did and not a specific calling for your life. And the inevitable result, painfully and slowly, is usually the case. When there's collateral damage in the family, the result is burnout. External busyness dries up the internal goodness that you once possessed. So the myths of calling, it's not just reserved for special people. Here's what I want to say to you. Yes, I'm a pastor. Yes, I'm a talking head. Yes, I stand up on the stage and have lights on me. And yes, yes, I do believe that there's a calling on my life. When I was in high school, I surrendered to that calling. I had to re-surrender in college because you all know how college can be, right? But I surrendered in high school. And I grew up in the type of home where... Uh, my parents and folks came around me and I told them, I walked the aisle and I had tears and I said, I'm being called into the ministry. And they were stupid enough to affirm that and they had tears and they believed that. I, had, I didn't have Lois and Eunice like a Paul to talk to Timothy about, but I had Ruth and Mavis and some godly grandmothers and a couple of uncles that were pastors. And they saw that and they celebrated. And yes, I would say to you that I'm called, but I want to say to you that you are too. You have a calling on your life. No matter the field, God has something for you. I would pray for you to discover that. Okay, don't wait. All right, the enemy says wait. Your laziness, your flesh says wait. And Jesus says initiate. And as you initiate, you will discover how God has made you. And other people will affirm that in you. But we all, all of us have a calling on our lives. If external busyness is drying up the internal goodness that you once possessed can I say to you that we will be here for you we would love to process that with you and help speak into that into your life 
I hope that you're in a group. It's why we're fanatical about groups. It's why we say get out of rows and into circles and live with one another in community. Let others peek into your life. Process what you learn on Sunday mornings and what you're reading and what you're looking at in life. Be an observer of life and learn and discover a calling in your life. So as we trace it through, we trace this idea of not being a proud person, not being a driven person, but being a person who's called. I want to point you, as I've traced it through the New Testament, I want to point you to calling in the New Testament. I've tried to debunk some of those myths, but let's look at directly what the Scripture says. There is a calling for all of us, a calling to become. A call, calling to become. Say it out loud with me. Say, I'm called to become. A little bit louder. What are you going to become? Remember when you were little? Y'all remember? Remember being little and you would declare what you were going to become? When I get big, I'm going to be. I'm going to become this. And I've thought about it recently, like philosophically, I guess, but why when you're little do you want to become anything? I mean, you have a chaperone, you have a chauffeur, you have a chef, you have a butler, you have a bodyguard, you have a protector and a provider. Man, that was good, and it went downhill from there, right? Because you wanted to get big and become somebody, right? I, was, I went running yesterday, sort of random with Robert on a Memorial Day weekend Saturday, and I, went to, I found myself at Ridgeland High School, and I was running the steps. And as I was running the steps, I noticed on the field, he, he was there before I was, but a little boy was kicking. He had, he had uh, lots of baskets of footballs, and he was just booming some punts. I mean, tight spirals. Uh, it seemed like they were just touching the sky. And as I was running stadium steps, I realized I'm just trying to become, well, not fat. And he's trying to become something. I thought, you know, that little boy is like a lot of little folks, right? He's got a dream. I want to be a football player. I want to become something. When I was little, little, I lived uh, with my parents. Always a good idea. I lived with my parents in Pampa, Texas. Any of y'all heard of Pampa? If you haven't been to Pampa, maybe you've been to Amarillo or Lubbock. They all smell the same. It's in the panhandle of West Texas, sort of close to Colorado. So I would say, man, I lived out West. And you know what I wanted to be? I wanted to be a cowboy. I told my parents, I told my older sister, when I grew up, I'm going to become, I'm called to become a cowboy. A few years later, Willie Nelson would sing, Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. You know the rest of this? Say, say it. Let them be doctors and lawyers and such. And then Willie Nelson got in trouble for pot and evading taxes and stuff. But anyway, my parents probably dissuaded me from becoming a cowboy. It didn't have a good dental plan, I'm sure. But like, you want to become something, and you know what God does? He taps into that. He taps into that. Some of you are here today and you're no longer young, all right? You know who you are and we know who you are. And what's cool about it, I feel like in this season for me, something personally God is calling me to is to help a 60-something-year-old man, and that's not old, but it's older, a 60-something-year-old man help discover a calling in his life. God isn't through with him yet. He's going to reorient him to something, and I believe God has many years and big plans for this not-so-young man anymore. But isn't it cool that something in you, that's a God-given desire. God has put something in you. I want to become. But let's trace it in Scripture real quick. A few passages rapid fire. 1 Corinthians 1. You see I got out the yellow highlighter, a couple of ladders, and got up there. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother, him, 
to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and what? Called to be his holy people. Romans chapter 1 and verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and what? Called to be his holy people. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Galatians 5, 13. We looked at this in our series um, earlier. You, my brothers and sisters, were what? Called to be free. You were called to become. What then are you becoming? Can I say today, in love, with a bit of admonishment and maybe a kick in the pants for some of you, you will never become what you're not now becoming. Would you today, would you today look to what you're becoming? And be honest. Be honest in your appraisal of where your feet are pointed and what you're really becoming. God put that desire in you to become something. And he wants you to be set apart. He wants you to be holy. Don't be scared by that archaic, ancient word. It's really a beautiful thing. It means your life is getting richer and fuller. There's meaning to it. He's cleaning out some junk in your life and freeing you to be the person that God has intended you to be. Not only are you called to become, I want to say it today, you're called to belong. And this is important because some of you, by default, are choosing isolation in your life. Now, we'll go seminary van just a little bit on them, but here's the Greeks had two words. Some of our folks are in Greece right now. Walter and Mary Rachel and Ryan and some good friends of mine are over in Greece. Greeks had two words for calling, kilio and kalio. All right? Pretty similar, huh? The first word, the first Greek word, had to do with giving someone commands or directions. And the second Greek word for calling had to do with inviting someone to come near. Okay? Now let's look at Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 on the screen. And you guess which one, which word Jesus used. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. There's that calling. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Now, keep that up. There's so much going on here, but this, this sermon, this is beyond the scope of this sermon, but Jesus called 12. That is so significant when you consider the 12 tribes of Israel, the 10 lost tribes, and what Jesus is doing at this point in history, but that's another sermon. But here, Jesus, what did he do? He called, and which Greek word did he use? Command or directions or an invitation to draw near? It was the second Greek word that Jesus used. It's a tender call. It's an invitation. Hey, you over there, you come here. It is my plan to reach the world, to begin this revolution of compassion and love where people, are, people can break free from the chains that enslave them. And I have this plan. It's really this master plan. It's a be with plan. That's Jesus' plan for the church. If church is just a weekly event, look, we're so glad that you're here but find a place. My prayer is that this is the place for you. But find a place. Don't split time between three or four churches. Find a place and move out of the larger group. No matter how large the church is, move out of it into a group of people because the plan of Jesus is that you would be with him and that you would be with others. And that's how Jesus wants to change the world. He's called you to belong. An early follower, we will get to John 3 at the end of the sermon, as I promised, but 
in 1 John 3, 1, it says this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be what? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is a love, John would say, that the Father has lavished on us. That we would belong. That we would belong to Him. That we would belong to His family. Can I tell you that it radically changes the way I live my life when I realize that I belong to the Father and that others do too. It changes the way I want to live. It changes the way I want to treat people. This week, I wanted to go after someone and treat them in an unloving way. And I was reminded that there's a Father who loves me despite my junk. And it altered the way I treated this person. It altered it radically. Does some of you find this to be true? I believe it's the Holy Spirit in me reminding me that he's loved me, that he loves me, and he's called me. He's called us to be children of God. When I was a college student, I went out to San Diego. This was long before I graduated and moved out there. When I moved to San Diego, I never surfed. But when I was in college, I surfed when I went to San Diego. Definitely a youthful idealism type of thing. And I had a surfboard, and I was out one day. And in the ocean, there was just nobody around. The marine layer was really thick. The waves weren't that good that particular day, which was good for me. And there I was paddling along, and I looked from one end to the other and saw no one. And then out of nowhere, some tiny little tot, I kid you not, paddled up next to me. And it was really scary. He wasn't scary. He was a little bitty guy. But I just didn't see him coming up to me. And he started talking to me like we were friends. He told me his name was Shane, and he told me, that uh, he loved to surf. He asked me my name, and we began uh, to talk. I told him I was from Mississippi, and he told me that I talked funny. And I asked Shane, I said, now, I'm telling you, this guy was so small, like he didn't even need a surfer. He could stand up on like a Frisbee. And I said, Shane, how long have you been surfing? He said, seven years. Perplexed, I said, how old are you? He said, nine. He said, when I'm out here, when I am out here, I feel so peaceful And I meet a lot of nice people. I said, Shane, you meet a lot of nice people because you're a really nice guy. That's how you hang out with nice people. You be nice to them. I said, Shane, how did you you get here? And he said, oh, my dad brought me. And we turned to the beach. And there was this Andre the Giant looking man doing Taekwondo. And that man, he smiled. He waved. Hey, son. And in that moment, it occurred to me that Shane was so at home in the ocean, not because of his size or his skill, but because of who was on the beach. This giant of a man, this father that brought him there and that was watching over him. You see, Shane, my little friend that day, was not alone. And neither are we. And the extent that you can be happy, the extent that you can be healthy, the extent to which you can keep your sanity and move forward in this crazy, twisted, truncated, messed up world is the extent to which you believe that you are not alone. There's a father who at times may not seem near. You might be in over your head with waves crashing around you, but there is a father 
who is in fact looking and he cares. And he brought you to where you are. You see, I want to draw a contrast because the world teaches us that belonging is the following. Belonging is trying really hard to make people like us. Have you fallen victim to that? Have you? I did a chapel at a school not long ago, and I remember there was a kid on a bench, and no one was talking to him, and there were kids all around him. I made my way to him, and I scolded some other kids. or I was just like a preacher doing a chapel that day. I'm like, talk to this kid. Huh? Like, talk to him. Like, let's not let people be alone. Let's create belonging. You're called to belong. And there are children of God all around you. Go to them. Because deep in us, we think belonging is trying really hard to make people like us. And the gospel, you can take it or leave it. But the gospel is a different story. And it says there is a father and you can be free. You can be free to surf even if you can't surf. You can surf if you're nine years old or a redneck from Mississippi. You can go to the waves and to the water. You can get in over your head. You can initiate conversations with people. You can approach him and you can approach others. Because there is a father who has called you. He has called you to be his child. And he is watching and he, is, he cares. And I know, I know that there are times when God chooses to be silent in your life. And I know that it's dark and it is painful. But there are lessons there. There are lessons there. We're called to become. We're called to belong. And thirdly, I want to say we're called, and this is what we miss in the church a lot, we're called, ready? We're called to be human. When Jesus came, he set up, you need to know this, he set up an entire new system of relating. Like there was a religious hierarchy or pecking order. You guys like hierarchies and pecking orders. You you do if you're at the top, right? But for the rest of us, like it's just not a good thing, right? We're trying to find our place. We're working hard for people to like us. We're trying to curry the favor of the person who's above us so we can get ahead. We're driven in that. And Jesus established something so vastly different. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 2 and verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. Now think with me, folks. You have a sin problem. I do too. We do. But maybe the real problem is that we pretend that we don't have that problem. I've quoted this recently, but John would say in 1 John chapter 1 that if we say that we do not sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Why? Why the pretending? Why can this place, this institution called a church, be among the fakest and most phoniest on the planet? He's called us. He's called us to know that there's something in us that's that's real and that needs to be reckoned with. 
people have no problem going to a doctor and admitting that they have a body problem. People have no problem going to a mechanic and admitting they have a car problem. Couldn't we, as sinners, admit to other sinners that we have a sin problem? Many years ago, I was in a group, a group of couples. All the couples were relative newlyweds. And we drew close, what I would call very close. And the men, all these new husbands, we talked about our woes, our honeydew list, and all the hard knocks of marriage, and how we were learning our own painful stories about how selfish we were in marriage. And we talked about sexuality, we talked about jobs, we talked about our struggles. And one day, one of our brothers did not show up. And the circumstances around it created this concern that we knew we we needed to reach out to him. And we discovered that week that he had a compulsive gambling addiction. It had gotten him into dire financial straits. It led to him being dishonest at work. He got fired and later divorced. And we didn't know that he had struggled for years with fear and compulsion and self-loathing. And I look back all those years ago and I wonder, I wonder if it had gone differently for him if we together had talked about that. His fears and compulsions and when he just hated himself. I wonder if he needed more courage to speak up. But deeper than that, I thought about my own role. And I wondered how, if in any way, my own desire to pretend to appear better than I am helped create a culture of superficiality where he didn't feel like he could speak up and talk about the real deep stuff. Jesus said, he didn't come to call the righteous. Look, don't pretend to be in that category. He came to call the sick. Those who will say, I have to deal with this. I have to deal with this. And I need a Savior who can free me and point me in the right direction. We're called, you're called to become. You're called to belong. And you're called to be human. I promise you we would end with John chapter 3. Let's look at it together. This is verse 25 to 30. If you have an open Bible, turn there. I'll read it from the screen. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, this is John the Baptist. They said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing. And all are going to him. It's this Jesus guy. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And one of the most beautiful ways for you to kill it 
to kill that pride inside of you is this. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Three things as we close. First, the greatest thing in life is not achieved, it is received. How many of you like to achieve stuff? Like, you can raise your hand on this. I hope you do. Like, I like to achieve. One of the reasons I was running the stadium steps and logging these miles is I'm going to get back on the horse and I'm going to run another marathon because the last one I didn't, it didn't end well for me. So I'm going to get back on that. Like, I want to achieve that, okay, even at my age. Like, I, there's, there are things that I want to achieve, and I'm looking at some of you who are high achievers. I'm looking past some of you as well. But some of you, I mean, like, don't apologize for wanting to achieve, but the greatest thing, the greatest thing, John tells us, it is not achieved. It is received. Second thing, we don't own anything. We just manage. We just manage. And it's why I, as a pastor, when I preach the word and we follow a Savior who talked about our stuff so much, our hearts and our money, it's why I have no fear in asking you to join us in committing your life to a life of generosity. Don't wait. Initiate. I shared this story at a deacon ordination service a couple of Sunday nights ago. But I I was speaking here at 11 o'clock service just a few weeks ago, and I mentioned how God, I believe, is calling me, calling us, along with our student pastor and our missions pastor, to create a kitchen in the gym. I mean, there's a kitchen there. It's just in bad shape. That there are kids in the neighborhood that we could feed, and there's ministry that could begin. But because I have been afraid to move us forward out of other fears, I've been sort of afraid to ask. And I mentioned that a few Sundays ago. And there was a man over here who waited, waited a long time to talk to me. He waited and he waited. He said, man, when you mentioned that today, it moved me. And he handed me a check. And I, I tried to be humble and, you know, no, no big deal at times. And I just put it in my pocket. And I was fearful later that day that it had gone into the washer. But it didn't. It's going into the kingdom. I'm always hesitant to talk numbers, but it was a check from a younger man for $10,000. How cool is that? Now, what's so cool about that is that was God's gift of grace to me by telling me, don't be afraid. He's called us here, and he's called us to open up our doors to improve this place so that it can be maximized, so that this facility can facilitate the work of God in Fondren and beyond. And what I want to say is, would you join us in the journey? John, he didn't hold his life tightly. He said, I'm going to decrease so that he might increase. And that affects stewardship in every area. You're not an owner of anything. It's not yours. You manage it for a season. So I pray. We can't be a generous church. And y'all know we take the tithe and we double it. And 20% goes to our partners. Our strategic partners. Dedicated, deserving people. Who are advancing the gospel and meeting the needs of people. But we can't grow and abound in the grace of giving. Unless more of us do. 
Your life is not your own. Look, if you're rich, that's a lot harder than the rest of us. That's a hard if you're rich. Thirdly, only in growing smaller does life grow fuller. That's a great paradox. But I know people who it's all about their increase. It's all about consumption and acquisition. It's all about what they can acquire. Luke chapter 12, it's about the bigger barns. It's about amassing security. It's about quenching thirst and being driven to find fulfillment in that. But I want to tell you, and we can learn today in John 3 from John the Baptist, only in growing smaller does your life grow fuller. I want you uh, this morning to stand with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and going to ask our leaders. I think, uh, Van, we have deacons and folks in the rooms, deacons and spouses, I think for the most part, are going to uh, go to the elements around the room. On Memorial Day weekend, we remember sacrifice of women and men. We think of our country. It's a really good thing. Aren't you blessed to be where you are today? Aren't you blessed to be here? But we have an opportunity today as we come to the table to remember to do what Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. It's a way that we, as we walk forward, as we follow the person in front of us, every follower of Jesus, everyone who says, this is my confession, I believe that you died for me, that your blood was shed for me, your body was broken. I follow you. I'm a child of yours. Take the bread. Just dip it into the cup. Be careful. There are germ phobes all around us. But just take that bread and dip it into the cup. And you will hear them say, this is Christ's body broken for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. And in one... One act that you dip, you'll take, you'll take the juice and you'll take the bread. Remembering the Savior. Father, I pray over these people this morning. And Father, I pray that we would kill it. The pride in us that keeps us from and causes us to that keeps us from being honest with ourselves and others and you, that keeps us from asking for help, admitting weakness, that keeps us bound, that causes us to rejoice when others fail, to have to have the final word, to buy things to impress others, to crowd other people out of our lives and to crowd you out. And our pride not be, might not be the verbal boast of arrogance. But inside of us it could be so quiet, but yet so real. So Lord, we humble ourselves through communion and through tithes and offerings. 
by saying that we want to decrease so that you might increase. That we're not owners, we're at best managers. And Lord, that the greatest gift, the greatest thing, your love, is not achieved, it's received. We do that now. Receive our